Hey guys, welcome to episode, I think it's 29, of the Grad Life Podcast. We've got um, a very accomplished 22-year-old law student and boxer, Mary-Kate Slattery, with us today. MK, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Mark. So you're a, law student, you're a law student and a boxer. Law in Trinity, final year? Uh, no, third year, so next year is my final year. Uh, yeah. Next year's final year, okay. Yes. And uh, then a boxer as well. We're going to mm-hmm. kind of talk about... Uh, the boxing is, I think, really interesting because you went to a pretty posh school, right? Uh, I did go to a posh school, yeah. And <laughs> it's very rare for people, for, for girls out of like a school like that where probably, I don't know, the, the, the general path out of it wouldn't lead to a, a career in boxing or boxing as a part-time, a pastime. Was that really strange for you to be doing something so strange relative to your, to your cultural context, I guess? Uh, I think that, you know... Um, combat sports and fighting is something that I've always been interested in. Um, but I never, I definitely didn't imagine myself ending up as a, as a boxer or seeing boxing as a career path at all for me. Um, but it's funny how I got into it was through like a a white collar fight night. Um, so organizing, um, a white collar fight night, native Crumlin, um, when I was in first year college. And, uh, so I, I really had no you know, I had no calling to, to, to box before that. Um, and then, so I set it up with one of my friends, Oscar Williams, and the two of us, uh, trained, well, there was a group of, of fighters and we trained for six weeks and I really just was hooked with the discipline. Mm. Um, and I guess it just suits my personality because, um, just by my nature, I do things, 0% or 100% and there's no real in between and that's something that I've learned to manage over the years but uh, for me boxing as an all-consuming sport it really suited me Um, so I got the bug I fought on the night and uh, got on really well and I was introduced to Tony Brown who's um, my teammate now he's an Olympic hopeful incredible boxer but he introduced me to his coach who'd never had a girl before and made it very clear you know he was like I'll train you for a few weeks and we'll see where we go but you know I don't take on girls and so there was a bit of a kind of million dollar baby uh, dynamic for for a while. And then three months later, I had my first fight and won an Irish title. And after that, it just kind of snowballed. And um, that's nuts. Yeah, it was really, really quick and and very much uh, a mad wave of, um, of a time. But I didn't think too much about it being um, outside my cultural context or outside anything. I don't think, I think that that's a self-limiting belief in itself. You know, I well, think that... Someone at that age, 19, would have had, like, self-limiting beliefs are quite common for uh, um, people at that age. Yeah, I, I guess so. I guess it is. Um, but uh, I, I don't think I was affected in that instance really? by, by yeah, it yeah. Yeah, at all. There was no big barrier to break through. Interesting. No. I always thought there would have been a huge barrier, just from observing yeah. kind of that, that trend line from um, that kind of background into that activity. It just, it, it, there's yeah. sort of a cultural disconnect. I, yeah. would have thought. Well, I definitely, uh, you know, I, I, I'm very grateful to Tony for making that introduction yeah. because I don't know, um, if I would have ended up in the club, like with the, yeah, sure. the I mean, I'm, I think it's really incredible. Like a works boxing gym and there that's the pro side of it, but it's St. Michael's as an amateur mm. club, but like it's a family there and the, the energy and the connections that people have is just like next to none. Yeah, you know, yeah. boxers who've been boxing their entire lives come in just for on a, on a weekend to spar and they're like, my God, it's good in here. You know, it's, That's it's it, I really just found um, this like haven of, of goodness there. Yeah, so yeah. Very, probably very a culture of excellence then as well. Totally. I mean, everyone's themselves. a high achiever there and um, 
yeah, everyone's real obsessive compulsive about their art, about their sport, yeah. you know, and um, I think that's why I, I love it so much is all consuming, it takes everything from you. I think it's really good for, I think actually this is a big thing missing for people when they go into college is they go, they, I think this is so common, they go from a school, any school or any sport team where there's a culture of excellence, whether it's the club they're playing for, or the school they're playing for in any sport or even academically, there's a push for excellence. And then they go into college and there's not anymore. And that's such a damaging thing. That's when they kind of start going out four nights a week or whatever it might be and don't really care about the academics, just get by. There's, in no area of their life are they pushing for excellence anymore. So to have a sport like that that does push you, I think is a really, really useful thing and healthy thing and something that would probably feed that culture of excellence back into your other activities in life. Yeah. Has that happened, do you think? Absolutely. I think that's such a powerful observation as well that people kind of drop off a little bit. They feel this, first of all, you know, that you're dealing with a level of freedom that they've never had before, Mm. you know, when you step into college for the first time. But also, yeah, nobody's chasing you. Nobody's really like pushing any sort of ethos or any sort of, you know, um, yeah, culture of excellence as you, as you phrased it like yeah. it's so true um so having having boxing for me you know it really um allowed me to just channel energy and and you know the discipline is uh remarkable because you know if I've got 45 minutes to study like I've got 45 minutes to study because my time is so uh limited you know like my days are long and and so you know, having something that you can uh, take so much from you in one one sense, you know, you have to give just as much in the other sense or else you're falling between two stools. Yeah, yeah, great. The reason the term culture of excellence is so quick because I had a career guidance uh, kind of client in recently and um, he was really worried about going into a course where everyone was going to be going out loads because he was a wow. soccer star and he mm. needed to like, you know, preserve his body pretty much. And we were saying you need a course that has a culture of excellence. And I thought that it was just unique to him because he's a soccer star or if someone's a boxing star or a rugby star or whatever. But really everyone needs that. And you don't have to be a star in any sport. It's just having something to do that will push you to be really, really good and push you to push yourself. Yeah, totally. Uh, That's all people need and they need that sort of culture at a young age and, and don't really want to lose it. Yeah, I think you can cultivate that culture within yourself though. You know, like you don't need to be surrounded by people who are in, you know, these in- incredible, you know, daily routines and feeling, you know, that they're pushing themselves. If, you, if you're if you surrounded by people who are going out, like my, a lot of my friends, they, you know, I'll have to catch them during the week at different times yeah. in order to hang out with them because I'm not able to go out and drink on a Friday night. I'm not able to do that, mm. you know, and, and that's perfect with me. Like, I don't mind, but I think that, you know, you really have to, like, where is it coming from, this culture of excellence? Like, if you don't want to be pushing yourself then don't yeah you know you have to really listen to yourself too not just go with with what everyone else is doing they say excellence i can't even remember the quote (laughs) excellence isn't like something you achieve it's a routine or it's a it's a habit yeah what's that quote yeah i'm not sure excellence is a habit right do you think you can have this culture of excellence without having say a routine and people always obsess about morning routines or whatever the case may be like you've got a training Mm. routine you train most days right Mm -hmm. yeah um do you think excellence can be achieved without a routine uh so it's funny when i look at the last three months of my life no two days have been the same you know my my routine is the most erratic routine but as long as i have like a minimum of three things I need to get done in a day and I'll do it. It doesn't need to be in a routine, doesn't need to be in a thing, but I still need to tick those things off the list. Yeah, so right. to a certain extent, there has to be routine, but uh, definitely flexibility is so important. And 
uh, that's another thing that I've had to work on over the years because I've been very, you know, obsessive about this has to be done by this hour, this has mm. to be done. But there's also kind of like you have to surrender to the flow of life and sure. be flexible with things. Um, because ultimately, if you're if you're if you're not flexible, then also you'll attach all these emotions, you know, stress, yeah. agitation, and that's just unnecessary and that will drain your energy. Mm. So, um, so what do you need to do? You need to train. You probably need to. You, I bet you're a meditator as well. Right? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Right. Yeah. And then there's another like, is it a kind uh, train, of reading? I train, do a morning session, evening session. I need to meditate and I need to get to to college or right, okay, or, yeah. or on my laptop do some work for a few sure. Hours. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I need to hang out with my my partner. Hang, yeah. hang out with my friends, my family. You know, there's a lot of things that just there's a balance. lot of responsibility there. Yeah. 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 Um, do, Weird question. Are you, do you like you've got more responsibility? I'd say you seem to have more responsibility than a lot of college students. So I'm I'm wondering if that's fair because they might have say part time jobs where you have the boxing and you have different commitments. Is it hard to balance all the responsibility? Um. So the first part of that question, I definitely feel like uh, it might seem that I have more more commitments, but I think you know I'm just very like public about it. You know, so yeah, people are kind of yeah. like, oh wow, look at all these things. But really, it's it's just the fact that these these lives don't really overlap. Mm. You know, it's it's because they're so f- far from the facets um, of each other that it might seem a little peculiar. But I think that like when I look at my friends, you know, they're working jobs, they're paying rent, they're uh, they're studying full time. You know, and they're 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 doing all of these incredible things too. You know, so I think that I definitely have the same level of of responsibility and the second part of the question was how do I balance it um I struggle really straight yeah up, struggle do you wish you were less busy uh sometimes yeah 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 because when I look back on now I like I'm I'm very busy now and I actually really like it but uh I wish I was more busy in college I don't know why I didn't use really? it very yeah. well I just like studied and drank pretty much I'd but very, I think that that is so important yeah I'm, so in a way important. I'm glad I did it that yeah. way because now I've I, you know I don't drink now and I've done it all like I'm yeah done absolutely all the party, I'm able get to out of your system yeah, yeah yeah absolutely so that can be a healthy thing I think for some yeah. people to do as well yeah and one of my favorite lectures in college Neville Cox he spoke in our first uh week of of college about how lucky we are right now to have time to sit and think. Yeah, right. You know, to r- truly, what do you think about that? For, forget what you, what society has told you that you should be doing, what, you know, how you've been conditioned to think. What do you actually think about things? Mm. He was like, sit, sit and have a pint and just mull things over. Like really just let, let your brain stew. How do you feel about this and why? you know? Yeah, yeah. And I think that that was such a banging lecture. I was like, wow, <laughs> you know? And I really feel like I wish I had more time for that. Yeah. So you did you the know? Vipassana recently. Yes. That is nothing but sitting and thinking. Uh, well, yeah, to a, cer- to a certain extent. I mean, you are trying to um, quieten down the brain and really just just observe sensations within your body. And, and it's a deep kind of surgical... Um, procedure on your psyche and on your subconscious yeah so it's a 10-day silent retreat you did it in morocco that's right yeah and what did you sit kind of cross-legged in that uh, pose you can the, sit in lotus or half lotus and uh, um sitting in lotus for whatever 10 hours a day yeah nine hours would be you yeah. need surgery on your hips yeah. afterwards well, see, like. that's that's the thing it's it's you're observing sensations within your body and not attaching emotions to it so you know, for the, you're, you're feeling like, oh my God, my back's going to go here. You know, I'm, I'm in, I'm in pain, yeah. but not attaching any agitation, not attaching any aversion or craving for a more comfortable position, you know, and that's, that's 
how you really uh, do the work on yourself and becomes this alchemical process of just um, knowing yourself and 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 living with equanimity, mm. you know, no but craving or aversion. It sounds like a muscle. It sounds like a mind muscle to do that, to take, to kind of lift the attachment off That's it. a sensation. And then probably more of that muscle involved than just keep looking at that sensation and pushing out any feeling for it. Yes, exactly. Is that so it's like? totally detachment. Yeah, yeah, right. And what's like when, so really handy that I'm jet lagged because I, I was up between two and four this morning okay. and I was trying to kind of go into some transcendental state Lovely. and get back to sleep. And I just couldn't, I didn't have the brain muscle for it and the mind muscle for it. And I was like saying, okay, think about nothing. And then I'd think about Belize or I'd think about something and it would just constantly come back mm -hmm. in. And I just couldn't do it. It was like you're under a weight and you're failing on the rep. I just wasn't able to do yeah, it. Yeah, so that's what I struggled with before I went into Vipassana. Uh, well, I, I, like I've been struggling with it for a while is, you know, when I'm, when I'm not able to quieten down my brain and not able to just observe my breath, observe the sensations, you know, scan from head to feet. Mm. Um, and I'd think about, like, have I set an alarm for that? I could be doing the washing now. All of these things. Exact same. But, but not feeling, not attaching an emotion to that. Not feeling frustrated. Not feeling like I'm doing something wrong. Not feeling like I'm, I'm failing at this. Right. So okay. you're, you're, you're watching these, observing these thoughts, but don't follow them. Mm. So it was, it was interesting. I was speaking to um, a group of secondary school students last week and they were the most remarkable group of girls. Like they were so in tune. And I was talking about meditation and one of the girls, she put up her hand, she was a first year. And she said, she was like, meditate, like when, when I'm meditating, I think of my thoughts as traffic. So you're sitting on a road and you're watching all of these cars pass, but you don't want to run and touch the car, mm. you know? So you let the thoughts pass. And I was like, that's incredible. You know, yeah, coming yeah. from a 14 year old, I was like, you're amazing. That's incredible. You know, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. I thought she was remarkable. Um, but that's the kind of way to, to, to feel it. Like let the thoughts pass over you, but don't follow them, mm. you know, don't un like unravel them. Yeah, sure. I think about that a lot. I think about the investments people make mm. people our age, um, a lot of it in probably Dublin and capital cities as well. They invest extraordinarily in their bodies and their images, their physical being, I guess. And they tend to neglect a little bit more the mental being. And it's the mental that will serve them a lot more. It, it's what will enable them to have a peaceful sort of tranquil life. And, you know, uh, as you say, avoid any, any negative sensation attached to experiences or uh, physical things, whatever it might be. It's the mental that will get them jobs and employed and uh, friends and all these different things. Yeah. But we tend to almost neglect the mental and just leave it grow passively rather than investing in it by reading or meditating or whatever else the case may be. Is that something you're conscious of? I guess you're doing totally. both between the boxing and the... Yeah, I think that, you know, we, we're so obsessed with having stimulus around us all the time, like whether it's our phone or emails or, you know, all of this like like media mm. and feeling that we need to update it and feeling, and I've definitely felt that pressure before, you know, um, just wanting to have an outlet. And with Vipassana, it teaches you like all you have and all you own is yourself. Yeah. You don't own anything else. You can't control anything else. And we're fools to think that we have any sort of say in in how the universe unfolds yeah. for us, you know? And uh, I think that, um, you know, for me, 
I, what I struggled with is not being able to write or read because that's another thing with Vipassana. You're very much you just, can't write. Can't write. I thought writing was, would have been a big part of it. Not at all. Right. No, you are really just. It's all it is is yourself. Yeah. And okay. all, all you have is your, your your mind, your brain. How do you think the like? How are you going to stop that anesthetic, the Vipassana anesthetic, from wearing off after a couple of weeks? Uh, it's interesting. So um, I felt when I left Vipassana, I was completely blown open, you know, like, and I was so susceptible to like energies, to people, to like, we came from this beautiful haven of, um, you know, protection and just silence and went straight into Morocco or straight into Marrakesh, which Mm. was like buzz, buzz, buzz. It was quite intense. Um, that would and be overwhelming. At like first, too much. at first, I felt like this is really hard. This is really overwhelming. I remember ringing my dad, and I was just kind of giving him the update, and he was like, "Mary Kate, you sound really sick. You sound like you're not yourself." Because my voice was cracking, and you know, because I haven't spoken in in yeah. so many days, and uh, I decided. Well, I was chatting to Mark, my partner, and he was like, "You know, see this as a superpower." You know, like you're able to just like feel so much. And so I've kind of welcomed that, you know, and um, it's instead of being like, oh my God, I'm blown open here and I feel too much because you've just done so much work on yourself to, to really just embrace it. And since then I've, you know, set aside an hour a day you sit and you observe sensations and, and a full hour, a full hour. And oh it's not God. that much at all. Really, People yeah. are always like, how do you get the time? It's not much. Yeah. Yeah. Instead of mindlessly scrolling through people's Instagrams or sending half meant texts to people, dedicate an hour. Yeah. I was thinking that this morning, I need to start doing that. Cause I was really annoyed. I, I, frustration attached to that sensation of not being That's able it. to do that. Yeah. Uh, that muscle thing. That's funny. God, it's a pretty incredible thing to do. It's, it's just important. Yeah, you know, yeah. Everyone should do it. I wish there was an eighth day in the week for Vipassana, you know, yeah. like everyone just shut off and listen to themselves. I think, mm. oh, I think the cycles of, of, of abuse and of, of uh, trauma would just be diminished, you know, like people yeah. would be truly listening to themselves and feeling what they feel. Is that the main big universal shareable kind of takeaway from it? Which is... is that you can detach the pain, totally. you can detach sens- sensations, yeah. attach to... Equanimity, you know, to to observe sensations and the nature of life is that things arise and then they pass. Yeah, yeah. Nothing is permanent. Everything is impermanent. Yeah. You know, so the pain that you feel after having an argument with somebody, that's going to pass. Mm. No point in feeling it. Or not. no point in attaching too much emotion to it, you know. Um, and one thing that I was kind of feeling, you know, I love to set intentions and manifest a future. Right. You know, and uh, what he, what Goenka, the 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 man who set it up, he um he was saying, you know, don't don't attach too much to an idea, hallucination of the future, right? And that's something I was like, but what about like wanting things? What about like striving for things, setting goals? It's, it's, it's not that you have to hand over your willfulness, not that you have to hand over wanting something, but you have to hand over the attachment that if it doesn't happen, that will cause suffering, you know? Mm. So I'm trying uh, to think. So this goes back to something I've often thought about, Buddhism, Taoism, all this sort of mm. stuff. They're great for getting through. They're great for like surviving life emotionally. And mm. if you can detach emotion from things, then it's all, you know, you can, you can get through it. You can survive it without being kind of emotionally worn out. But then, and from one angle, that's optimal. From the other angle, 
we're humans, we're animals and emotions part of us and it's part of life to go up and down with these things. And mm -hmm. some people kind of like the ride of going up and down yeah, and absolutely. bouncing up and falling down, etc. Do you think one, do you, do you think they're in conflict basically? And how, how would you reconcile the conflict that they're in? And that, that kind of ties into what you're talking about. I mean, you want to strive for things you want to achieve because you're an animal and that's what people do. That's what animals do. But then, and if you don't, Say if like you really want to marry someone and then they don't want to marry you. This whole Eastern philosophy would say, don't be sad that they don't want to marry you. But then you kind of wonder, well, how much did you ever allow it to mean to you if you wouldn't even be sad when it was pulled away from you? Totally. And that's something that I definitely struggled with in there, you know, is like, but I, I want these things. And, and how passive will you become if you yeah. are like, everything's just fine. Like, you, you know, and that, that I get that completely, but it's, there, there's a balance to be to be struck between wanting something and then attaching this unnecessary emotion that it's just like, so to eradicate suffering, you detach yourself from something when you need to. Sure. And that's a practice in itself, detachment. So we've agreed that you want to allow it to mean something to you. Of course. But then the Vipassana is saying, you don't want to allow it to mean emotion to you. You don't want it to cost you emotion. To cost you emotion is a good way of saying it. You, but can, if it, you can want something and will for something, but when it doesn't happen, there's acceptance there. There's there's total equanimity. This pain is gonna is gonna pass. Mm. You know, I'm trying to separate them now. So you're kind of saying, which is it? Is it A or B? A is this. A is you don't allow it to mean emo to cost you emotion or to mean emotion to you. And I kind of I think they're the same. So. A uh, can of Coke means one euro to me, it costs me one euro. That's, they're, they're kind of the same thing there, meaning and costing. So it costs me emotion, it means emotion to me. That's option A. Option B, is, or sorry, it doesn't, it doesn't. Option A is it doesn't cost you emotion, doesn't mean emotion to you. Option B is it does, and when you lose it or it gets taken away, you then have this, and again, for want of a better term, muscle, that can wipe out the suffering or that can erase the suffering, just like a window wiper muscle. That just takes away, okay, I'm not going to feel that about this and I'm going to move on. I'm going to settle the score with this right now and just move on. I'm not going to think about it again. Yeah. So are, are I would say it's closer to, yeah, I definitely think they're cl clearly different, but I think there's a, a middle, middle ground, but I think that it would be closer to B. So allowing yourself to want for something, you know, but when it doesn't happen, there's acceptance there. Yeah. And you know that you've, you've got the work or you've, you've done the work so that you can detach yourself from something. Like if I was to, you know, lose a, a close friend tomorrow, then I, I'd feel incredible pain, you know? But there's, there's also an element of detachment, being able to, you know, observe the sensations, observe all of this pain, but I know that it arises and it falls. And that's anicca, that's the, the, the nature of life, the, the rule of life. You don't realise what you've just done for me. That's been a huge thing for a while for me, trying to figure out A and B there. Because really? I really don't like A. I, I don't really like don't like, either. don't let any mean anything to you. Mm -hmm. I like the up and down. I like riding the waves, you know? And it is just this acceptance muscle. Totally. I'd look at everything as a muscle because it's easier. That's nuts. Yeah, that's it. And they give you exercises to accept. Yes, yeah. My go-to routine for accepting, which kind of works for me, is always just check if your heart's still beating. And if it is, it's not that big a deal. That's it. I, I always say to myself, you know, like, does the universe give a shit? Yeah. No. Like, it's been around for 14 billion years. Mm. Like, does it actually give a shit if you 
pass away tomorrow? No. Yeah. Everything is still perfect. The universe is perfect, you know? So that, like, I think that will mean a lot to a lot of people to hear. It isn't about not attaching. Mm-hmm. It's a, but, it's about, but it is about detaching. You know? Yeah, d- detaching almost after the fact, though, and just saying, okay, in the grand scheme of things, yeah. that wasn't that big yeah. a deal. Yeah. And just moving on. So if you're in this kind of frame, you can still set goals, really want things, go after things. It probably, uh, it would disbar materialism, though. Like, materialism's a different thing, right? Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah sure. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think materialism, I think I described it as like white sugar for the body or something. It nice. gives you a kick. Yeah. But then over time you become addicted and it's just really bad for you. Yeah. And a little bit more colorful than that. But that was basically the, the gist of it. Yeah. Um, or do you think you're materialistic in any way? Uh, I think I was for a long time. Really? I think yeah. part, part of me still enjoys nice things. and um, But again, I have no attachment to them. Yeah, right. You know, n- no attachment. Yeah. I yeah. uh, I think it's like a first, I think, you know, we always use the term first world problem. The first world problem is that we have materialism in our lives and we're, we get distracted from the stuff that's actually important. Yeah, I think the problem is that when people um, crave more, you know, nobody's ever satisfied with one handbag or two new pairs of shoes. Like, yeah, I yeah. think that they always want more. And that's where the suffering arises because you're attaching all of this, this, craving and aversion to to not having it but craving having it yeah and that's when there's this suffering comes up within you mm. you know and to eradicate suffering you detach yourself yeah sure and accept and just know? accept and, yeah. and move on yeah yeah i think there's a, such a culture nowadays of wanting more constantly wanting updates improvements and um, it's not th- yeah and it's so damaging the best example is the iphone queue i think when a new iphone comes out on a tuesday People take the day off work and queue up for hours, like mm-hmm. for for a full day, when they can just go back in on the Wednesday or the Thursday and get it. Yeah. Like that's, I think that is insanity. Yeah, it, it totally is. Yeah. And I, I think, think with social crazy. media as well and everyone putting their best foot forward all the time, it's yeah. like, okay, how am I going to make myself the best version of me? Like, and, and there's an idea of, you know, getting your hair done, getting your nails done, like for girls, you know, constantly improving your looks, that's improving you. No, it's not. I admire you a lot for that, for the way you do that. Most girls put up pictures of them on a night out, the 16th picture they took or whatever. Whereas you put up pictures of you like boxing and all this sort of stuff. Like it's, yeah, I yeah. think it's very I cool. I think there's it's so much different. power in vulnerability. You know, like just. Do you, is that something you deliberately do? You kind of think, yeah, I'm going to be different from the mold here. I'm actually going to show my real self rather uh, than. Yeah. And I think that there's such a, like a pressure taken off when you're not like just constantly yeah, appearing yeah. a certain way, you know. It must be very hard for those people who do, who do I'd, the best foot forward. Absolutely. Forging. I'd say so because very they're constantly, hard. and I, you know, I, I, I mean, I'm not going to speak on anyone's behalf, but I think that there's like a, you know, a culture of always wanting to improve, you know, checking likes, checking followers, feeling like you owe something to people when, when you're not actually. So one thing that I always say is, you know, before you post a picture, why are you posting the picture? Ask yourself that question. Am I posting it because I like it or am I posting it because I think somebody else will like it? Yeah. Do I need validation? Do I need affirmation from external sources who, quite frankly, don't give a shit about you? Mm. Do I need that? Or am I posting this because I want to share it because I like the picture myself? Yeah. Then you don't need affirmation or or validation from anyone else, you know? Yeah, the validation thing is something I kind of ramble on about a lot as well. People need it in all different kind of shapes and sizes and sources Mm. and these sorts of things. I would say if I went to Vipassana, this is what I think, and you probably know if I'm right, right or wrong, I would like to think I'd focus a lot on that. Focus on the validations that are 
needed. Even like not for passing it, just on a Saturday morning, <laughs> sit down and write a list of the validations. I have done this. I, yeah. I don't even have it with me. Um, a list of validations. No, a list of validations that you need in your life. And if you can look at that list just plainly, yeah. you what say, sort of what? things are on the list? There's some. A big one was always to be, not always, but a huge one is, this is weird, but to validate the heart attack <laughs> because you kind of, like, I, I think it was like a one or 2% survival thing there. Yeah. And I always feel like I need to validate or justify the survival, which is kind of might sound a bit nuts, but you meet a lot of people or hear about a lot of people who don't survive and you're like, geez, like there's no, why would I have gotten it and they didn't type of thing? And there's almost like a, I wouldn't say it's a pressure. I wouldn't say it's a strong pressure. But you do feel the need to kind of validate it or something or yeah. um, go and make yourself different to everyone else because you've been through that or something. I don't know what it is. It's strange. Yeah. Um, that's probably number one, I think. And to be admired off the back of that. Okay. Wow. Yeah, I think that would be it. That would be number one. If we sat here, I'll think of others as well. Thank you for sharing that. <laughs> no, of course. Yeah. I'm all, yeah, yeah. Again, like I'm pretty happy to as well. Like, yeah. There's no, uh, there's no, so I think that that's something I said to you once. I wrote an article that started off with before I go to bed every night, I wear yeah. suit cream yeah, on my I face. Love that. <laughs> yeah. I love that. And th- because I do. Yeah, because we all do. Yeah, you know every, I mean? and, and I was like, and a- I know you do too. Yeah, in yes, the article. Yeah, yes, yeah, yeah, yes, yes. I love that. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's nothing. A human and it's, thing. it's totally, and it's just, it, it takes this, this lifts this like pressure of appearing and doing things a certain way. And that's, you know, it's just be so much power and vulnerability. Yeah. You know? Mm. Like there's no power in pretending that you're something else. No, it, it just kind of detracts from your relationship with yourself, I would say. That's the thing I'd worry about, I think, with um, with the Instagram culture is it actually distorts people's relationships with themselves because they even, they m- maybe start to see themselves through the lens of their Instagram as well. Yeah. So I look at someone I don't know and I look at their Instagram and that becomes my opinion of them. Yeah. That's pretty natural. But if someone looks at their own Instagram and that becomes their own opinion of themselves, that becomes worrying. Yeah, absolutely. And I actually, I've never realized that, but I think that kind of happened. That might happen. I've never thought about this idea before, but I wonder if that happens. I wonder too. Um, Because that, that, I mean, it makes sense, but it's, that would be totally damaging. Disconnect. Honestly, it's crazy. Um, What sort of stuff do you crave then? Like, what would you, you're obviously big on goals. What would the goals be? Um, So. Do you do it per year? No, I tried that. So I wrote, you know, like 2019, I wrote up uh, my manifestations for the year and, um, you know, the different things that I want to achieve, the things I want to do. Um, and I felt after that so overwhelmed and so like, what? It just became too much. Mm. So what I do now is at the start of the week, Sunday evening, I write down all the things that I would like to achieve or all the things that I would like to manifest. Um, because again, I think that we're so to think that we have any sort of control about how life plays out. We don't. We have absolutely, we're completely helpless and we're so stupid to think that we have some sort of foot in the door with how life is going to unfold for us. We don't. Yeah. You know, so to, to, I I definitely am a strong believer in visualizing and, and manifesting. Um, so in through intention setting, but again, We've no control. Mm. So yeah, I'd like to get to training tomorrow twice. If I don't, yeah. that's life. Say la vie. Surrender to the flow. 
I agree with that. And I actually, I talk about the idea of like trusting the wind. So I want to, I say at the start of, start of 2019, I'm going to set sail and I'm going to go for these shores. And if the wind blows me off, which inevitably it will, I need to just trust the wind and I'll say, no, 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 push back. I'm going for those shores over there. Take, let it take you where it knows you're supposed to go. That is absolutely class. You know, do you <laughs> yeah, like it? Good. I love that. <laughs> oh, yeah. That is class. That's uh, that's something I kind of think and talk about is I want to be, um, I want to be a manager in my job by December. And then if your job says, sorry, you're not going to be a manager, we're actually going to put you in this team over here or um, we're going to move you over to Colorado or whatever it might be. You just say, okay, if that's, if that's the way, like, you know, if yeah. you want the manager thing, maybe push for it for a while, but if that's yeah, the way yeah. it's going to be, that's the way it's going to be. Yeah, and totally. off you go. And, yeah. and again, use your acceptance thing and, acceptance. and roll with it yeah. and trust that this is your path. Trust that this is what's meant for you. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I find uh, it probably happens in the context of love stories a lot. I love when the person says, I didn't really didn't want to go out on the night out. And then their friend like, kicking and screaming, dragged them out. And that's where they met the girl they married yeah. or the boy they married yeah. or went out with for a while or whatever yeah. it might be. Yeah, yeah. That sort of thing shows so that the wind yeah. pushes so you in the right direction. Yeah, absolutely. And you just need to work with it. Yeah, but um, I think that what you said there about just trusting that it's it's your path, that's so important. Um, but striking the balance of listening to your gut and listening to just how it makes you feel in the yeah. moment. Because there's also a part of it that goes, you know, you can't be passive. And if somebody's saying, you need to go there, why? Does, how do I feel? Is this right for me? Then, then yeah, trust. Yeah, sure. And there, but there's there a check in there. That's there's definitely a point paramount. against it. Yeah. Uh, I, I remember I didn't go with my gut commercially once. It was a terrible decision. And then I just pulled out of the whole thing. I was like, no, screw this. And it ended up like reversing a lot of work. Really? And that was the, I, because theoretically I knew the idea, trust your gut. And then I was like, no, no, I'm going to use my brain for this one because it's a business thing. Screw my gut. And from now on, because I've, what, what did I say that, uh, again, the jet lag, twice bitten, three times something, or once bitten, twice, tw- once bitten, twice shy. That's once it. Once bitten, twice shy. And because I got bitten from not following my gut, I'm now going to actually do it every time. Whereas when it was just an academic thing and someone said, oh, this is the theory, follow your gut. And I had no actual experience of it. I was less inclined to actually to, to, to stick with it. Um, but I think the gut thing is a, is a pretty big thing. Do you believe in the law of attraction and all these type of things? Like uh, you're, I bet you, you, you seem like the type who would, where you're kind of like, my gut says this, so the universe is working in this way with me and... What I put totally. out, I get back and these yeah. sorts of things. I'm glad, that that? I, I'm glad that you sense that I can. <laughs> yeah. I, I feel like, you know, surrendering to the flow of life is so important, number one. But also being active in your setting intentions, intention setting manifestations. Like I have an altar in my room that I literally will write and I'll set my intentions. I've got my, you know, I'll burn incense and I'll just, I'll meditate while I'm there yeah. on these, these different intentions that I've set and these manifestations, these goals that I'd like to have. But again totally there's attachment mm. there too um so i think that the law of attraction is very powerful and through visualizing things you can you can achieve and you can totally manifest your energy and your future which yeah way yeah it will unfold for you but again that's interesting so you you've got like really good it seems mental health now and you're kind of you know playing away with it and these sorts of things but you didn't always and as a, as a no. teenager you kind of struggled a bit yeah. more with it 
Yeah. I mean, I, I definitely wouldn't say that I have very good mental health, but it's up and down. And I think that I've gotten so much better at managing um, how I, you know, the tools that I use to bring me out of, of anxiety. Like this morning I woke up massively anxious, really, like really struggling. Like I, and it, it happens to me, you know, sometimes I'm, I'm when sad to know when that I, I had that. It wasn't, it no, wasn't the not podcast. At all, not at all. <laughs> it was literally just leaving the house. And for some reason, when I leave my house, I've, I, like I had a lovely long sleep last night and I felt really happy and ch- chilled out. And then just leaving the house this morning and coming out and like seeing all the cars and all, all of this hustle bustle that's going on mm. for some reason, just without even knowing it's like a subconscious thing, just anxiety was coming up on me. But through a little bit of just observing sensations and Vipassana style meditation on the bus, got through it. And, yeah. you know, I was able to just detach myself from this emotions. Am I going to take this with me through the day? No, it's not mm. serving me. Leave it here. Um, but, but yeah, that's so, yeah, so that's it's up powerful. and down, but, but the tools are there. I never, I was like, I was always the most unanxious person on the planet and bizarrely, and the most social and bizarrely, this social anxiety started creeping in like two years ago, not to a big degree at all. But I was saying to someone yesterday, because I was at a work thing for the past week and there was like 40 of us in uh, Belize and all like such nice people, nice culture, yeah. et cetera, the most welcoming environment. And before we went for dinner, everyone would go down to the bar and drink. And because I don't drink, there's a, probably, that's the first trigger for a layer of anxiety is you're at the bar and you're the, the one who's not drinking. And I appear to be perfectly confident with that. And I am I am very confident with it, but there's always a gap where you're yeah. the odd one out and... Um, People are, I don't know, you're in a place for drinking and you're not doing the thing that you're meant to be doing in that place. And it's a little bit odd. Um, but yeah, this layer of anxiety started like building in uh, then and, but always. And it's always there if I'm at a party or whatever yeah. it might be. I always say the two people I'm most, the two conversations I'm most comfortable in are one-to-one and then one to like a thousand or one to a big group type okay. of thing. And anything in between, there's a layer of, yeah. there can be, sometimes be a layer of anxiety. It's really strange. Yeah, I feel that. How do you deal with it? Um, the first thing is to observe that that sensation of anxiety, mm. observe that feeling and see why is it coming up in me, like assess it, how how deep is it? Um, and then for me, it's, I, I am a big believer in CBT and like with my history with anorexia, you know, I had four years of, of CBT training and- Is cognitive behavioral therapy, that's how you got rid of or how you worked against anorexia? Uh, it's definitely a massive contributing factor. It was right, kind of okay. a catalyst for my recovery, you know, being able to catch a negative automatic thought and assess it, weigh it up. You know, what is the evidence for this? What is the evidence against this? Because often when I, when I feel anxious, I feel, um, it's, it's, it starts with, uh, an irrational thought, like a negative automatic thought that just says, I'm never going to get this done. Hang on. Right. You're never going to get this done. What's the evidence for that? What's the mm. evidence against that? The reality is, of course you're going to get it done, like whatever work you're doing, but you're going to need a little bit more time. So you, to do that, you need an objective, rational foundation. Uh, yeah. When you're, I'm guessing when you have anorexia, you don't actually, ha- you, do you lose touch with your objective, rational foundation? Uh, so when I was like in the depths of anorexia, I didn't know who I was, what, what made me happy, what I liked, what I disliked. So a, a, a rational foundation was very much a struggle. So what I did was, you know, be able to write it down and verbalize it is very powerful because then you can more accurately assess whether it's rational or, or irrational. Using other people's rational foundations? Uh, or yeah, or even just, as a rational so foundation. one of the, the things, just being able to write it down and verbalize it, whether you're by yourself or with other people. The fact that you're actually writing it down, you're able to see it more objectively. Mm. Um, it's not just trapped within your your brain, which is in in, in a dark space. Yeah. You're able to go, oh, that looks a bit mad now. Like that's actually not true. 
you know. So could, could you explain anorexia a little bit? Like, what's it? Because I I know people who have had it, or or I, I know someone and I've heard they have had it. Mm-hmm. Not just girls, actually. I, I have a close friend. In fact, I've never asked him this. He had it in secondary school. Yeah. Um, and I just I'm always fascinated by what's going on in the mind. Like, wh- how does it work? Yeah. So I I'm always wary of answering this question because I know that from meeting like hundreds of girls who've had anorexia, you know, it's it's totally. Uh, it changes, right? right? Okay. So everyone's experience of it, or even lads as well, because yeah. I have a close friend who as well has suffered with, but um, it changes from person to person. But for me, it was uh, a loss of control um, and trauma as a child that kind of acted as this um, seed for negativity and darkness and hatred towards myself. Um, Interesting. Yeah. And so it was this loss of control and feeling overwhelmed and wanting control back because it was just part of my like perfectionist, high achieving uh, personality um, that I was like, right, I'm going to control my food, Mm. you know, and this is a nine year old deciding I'm going to completely control and have um, ultimate say over what I ingest. And I really started at the start, I was really enjoying it, you know, taking out uh, sweets, taking out white carbs, all of these different things that I was doing. And then it just became uh, all consuming and I was totally wrapped up in starving myself and I was addicted to the sensation of starving and to shocking people and feeling um, just a sense of accomplishment through losing weight and seeing the, the numbers drop on the scales and uh, enough was never enough. There was yeah, always yeah. more. Um, so it was a spiral out of control and it was very much all of my energy channeled into it, you know. I had a kind of backwards version of it where I, I understand that anorexic people look at themselves in the mirror and say I'm not skinny enough. Mm-hmm. I used to do it uh, with like muscle and say I wasn't muscular enough. I used yeah, to train for seven hours a day. It's a sort of, sort of body dysmorphia as yeah. well. And I went to, uh, years later I went to a psychologist for other stuff, for CBT. And they said that it sourced back to control as well because mm-hmm. things I couldn't control as a child, I became I got this like control freak thing. Yeah. And training was the only thing I could control. But then other things you've mentioned there, shocking people, etc., all came into it. Yeah. It's kind of weird. It is. And it was almost I remember I was in I was working in school and uh, three of the staff members on separate occasions asked me to stop training because they were like, This is getting completely nuts. And that was almost like a reward. That was like totally more encouragement to go training, yeah, you know? I hear that. Um, it's weird how people, it's scary how young, because now that I'm older, I'd look at, say, if I met my 18 year old self, I'm nine years older than them, I'd be like, you're such a young kid, like, relax, there's no, but then when they're in that mind, there's no getting in or out of that mind, you know, it's just, I don't know, how, maybe, obviously CBT did it for you, and that's the way, because I'm sure parents and everyone tried. Yeah. But there's no way in for, no like, way for outsiders. In. Yeah. And that's why I, you know, I meet with a lot of girls and guys who are struggling, but it's kind <laughs> of like, you know, within the first 20 seconds of the meeting, whether you're going to actually connect yeah, to this person sure, or yeah. not. Because I remember when I was in the depths of it, you know, I was in and out of Crumlin for three years. And then when I was 12, my parents, 11 and a half, my parents made a difficult decision to just send me to a psychiatric ward in London with like, the, the the sickest kids in, in Europe, basically. And uh, I was the only one with anorexia, but I remember being there for a few months and having this thought 
you know, because I remember the first day I was admitted, um, like I arrived at lunchtime, sat down in the, the dining hall and they put lasagna in front of me and they were like, would you be able to manage that? And I was like, no, no, I've already eaten my strawberries for the day. So at that point I was eating six strawberries a day and that was me done. And, and I was like, I don't have a problem. You guys are all wrong. Uh, like you've got to just get over it here because it's actually embarrassing on your behalf. You're going to realize in a few days she's able to just eat her strawberries and she's absolutely fine. There's nothing wrong with her. And I was so, uh, you know, my, my thought process was just galvanized. It was, that was it. And you're wrong. But after a few months of like the strict regime there, because it was very much, if you don't cooperate, you won't see your family, you won't leave the ward, you won't do anything. Do they do that? They do carrot and stick things? Um, in a certain way, yeah. Right, okay. Yeah, because it's a very deepest disease, you know, like you, you, you really become, you want to hide everything and, and anyone who shows warmth to you, like there was, the, the, the staff were so lovely and I hated them for that because I was like, you've got something you want to, you want me to hurt, you know? Right. And that was how twisted my mentality was. Like I was, I was like, they want me to eat. They're going to make me eat. They're going to mm. make, make me fatter than I already am. And, um, so that was for me was like, yeah, anyone who was kind, I was like, get away. So I completely shut down. I was totally isolated. I was my, like in my own darkness all the time. And, uh, a few months after, sorry, I'm rambling here, but a few months after I, the first time I was like, maybe they have a point. Maybe I am sick. Maybe there is something wrong here, you know, and it, it took the strictness and the being in a separate country to my parents, my family, like not seeing anyone that I knew, not having nothing familiar took, you know, that, that little thought. And that was the catalyst for my recovery yeah. was, was going, okay, maybe these doctors, all the doctors in Crumlin and maybe all the doctors here have a point. You know, and that was met with a, a massive retaliation from my anorexic brain, my, you know, with like just pulling out all the stops to tell me I was wrong. But mm. a part of me knew this is actually Mary Kate's voice, you know. I don't know if I should, I don't like to be, if I'm perfectly honest, I'm not actually thinking poor you. I was thinking your poor parents. I don't know why I was thinking totally, that angle. Totally. Should I be thinking poor you as well? No. Was it, was it torturous well, I mean, to go through or was it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Like it was torturous for everyone involved. I, I was the only reason I think it wouldn't be was because you seem to to have been making sense to yourself, but yeah, I guess yeah, with everyone I, else. I think I'm making you. sense of it now. I think at the time, okay, was yeah, the first yeah. thing from sense. Yeah, it right. Was totally, um, yeah, I was totally alone. Um, when I try to describe what it's like to have anorexia to people, is like you have n absolutely no emotion. Like you're, you don't feel pain, you don't feel happy, you don't feel mm. sad, you don't feel love, you don't feel hate. You're, it's just you on your mission. All you want is to lose weight. All yeah. you want is to starve. The guy who had it in our year credits, he didn't talk to this guy for a year after, but he credits him with it now and has for the last maybe, I don't know, six years or something. Um, the guy who told on him, he credits the guy who told on him for helping him because that was, everyone else was like, God, like this guy's getting very fit and good on you and whatever. But then when someone actually went and told on him and it became this huge deal, he was so livid. But he realized that that's, that's kind of what he needed. He needed adult intervention. Yeah. Um, but that's probably, you know, adult interventions way back the supply chain from where, from where you were. What can people, if someone out there has a friend who's suffering from this sort of thing, what can friends of, of anorexia, anorexia sufferers yeah. do? Um, so I, like I'm asked this question a lot and again, it's different for everyone. But I think for me, um, at my state, uh, the only thing 
that could be done for me is to make me laugh or to distract me in some way. Not to talk about how thin you look, not to talk about how sick you look, not to talk about the nature of food, to talk about like your parents. And that's that's kind of what I was met with all the time. It's like, look what you're doing to your family. Like you're tearing yeah, them apart. Yeah. And that would just add to my guilt and add to my pain, add to my suffering. And and I knew my parents didn't want me to hear that either, you know, but lots of people would say that. And, yeah. and uh, I think that the best thing that was ever done was just to sit down and glass of water and just to chat. Yeah, as right. if I didn't have a problem sure. because I w- every interaction that I had with people was you are a problem yeah and it get, probably built up the intensity in your head totally. so actually relieved the intensity a little yeah bit. in whatever way just make you feel normal in some way yeah that's interesting you know god these poor and I say kids it seems to be more of a teenage thing than mm. it's than all ages yeah all ages all ages yeah yeah because yeah. yeah it was actually remarkable I was um, teaching boxing a few um, I think it was like a year ago maybe and I just no it was about yeah, about a year and a half ago, and was, I, I shared my story for the first time because it was very much a closed book, um, and my friends didn't know, my, you know, like, teenage boyfriend didn't know. Like, it was just very, I just didn't speak about it, you know. I just, I, I actually didn't like that part of me that had a problem. Um, and again, there was healing in sharing it for the first time. But I remember uh, a middle-aged man who I was, like, teaching boxing, he came to me and he was just like, uh, your story has resonated so deeply with me. Like I've had every sort of addiction under the sun uh, and anorexia is one of them. And he was like, and the fact that you were able to share it and the fact that you were able to talk about it and somebody who doesn't, who seems to have their stuff together, but like I don't, but <laughs> I don't think anyone does. Mm. Um, but like, he was like, that was really powerful for me. And I was like, oh my God, to hear that coming from somebody who I completely didn't see, like it has no bias, you yeah, know, sure, mental yeah. illness has absolutely no bias. No. So I thought that's that was a very important thing that you're doing. Um, God, it's remarkable. And then like, we're a little bit uh, tied on time here, but I did want to ask about the whip as well, the Washington oh, yeah, yeah. program. Yeah. <laughs> we, we did we mention <laughs> that. This is a serious, yeah. like, yeah. <laughs> <Honestly>, <laughs> all over. Big diversion. Yeah. It always happens. I, I just get sucked into these conversations. <laughs> I know, but that's great. Like, yeah, it's, it's good. It's, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, whip. Mm-hmm. I think just like go. Washington what is it? Washington Island program. program. Uh, yeah. So it's a... Uh, a program set up to take um, future leaders of Ireland as they see it. Now, that's completely subjective, but they take them. uh, So there's 15 students from Northern Ireland, 15 students from Ireland, and we go to, well, it was Washington, um, and now it's Washington and New York. So I was was in their first year of being in the New York five. So out of the 30, there was five of us in New York, and uh, we were put in placement, and... It's a very, um, it's basically just developing your skills as a leader and as, as, as a person who is, has a long-term dedication to service and giving back to the community. So as well as doing your, your work internship, you are volunteering. Um, we volunteered in Harlem Food Kitchen and in Brownsville, Brooklyn, um, at the youth centre there. Right. And uh, it was a beautiful balance between developing your uh your skills as a professional, but also as, you know, a human. And um, I think that the 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 ethos and the the different um, values that WIP has are just, is what sets it aside from anything yeah. else. What's the know? internship do you do? So I was in a branding firm. 
Right. In, so it's a business type. Oh, yeah. Totally. Right, okay. Yeah. And, and there's uh, one of the other lads went to the consulate and the Irish consulate uh, to a law firm, to a lot of politics, a lot of um, Congress. Yeah, and, okay. Uh, That's what I thought. And, yeah. So it's very much heavily involved in politics yeah. and law and policymaking and, uh, yeah, different professional. Yeah, okay. Areas, yeah. And you don't have to be in Trinity to do it and you don't have to be No, in... no, not at all. It's just uh, college. So right, interesting. Whatever stage, people were doing their PhD. Some people were doing their right. master's. I mean, obviously, my undergrad. Yeah. And uh, it depends at what stage you're at, but as a student um, from uh, Ireland and Northern Ireland. And uh, it it's very much... So it, it arose as 25 years ago as a part of the peace process. So okay. to take students out of the, the, the centre of the conflict and take them to a completely different environment and for them to mingle and get on. Sure. You know, because I, I typically, like, you know, from Dublin or from the west of Ireland, you're, you feel a little bit sheltered from all of the conflicts yeah. that happened in, in, in Northern Ireland on the border countries, the border counties. And uh, so I met people who have very different views to me. Very, like, it was completely polarised, but everyone had a, a, like, a political ideology. Yeah. Or some sort of um, idea on the world and... Um, yeah, in, in in beautifully different ways. So and you just learn from each other. Totally, that's and incredible. Yeah, it was a fantastic experience. Really, I, I I talk to students about it, and I say it's an incredible thing. But how do you get it? How can they help themselves get it? Uh, so through um, the, I know that they they have selected the the group for this year, but for next year, it's it's a matter of going onto the website and applying. So it's an application form. There's five different questions. Um, they just see whether you're fitted. And then after that, there's a, an interview process. So there's a group interview and then there's a one-on-one, -on -one, well, one-on, a panel. Yeah, but right. You're, you're yeah, single, yeah. you're a solo. And um, then you're, you're selected as from, from that. Yeah. You know. Really cool thing to do. It's I definitely recommend thing. it to a lot yeah, of people. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So. Okay, before you go, a couple of quick fires. Yes. Um, a big one is a book you've read. You're a reader, mm -hmm. so you'd have some good ones. Yeah. What's a good book um, you think young people should read? Oh, Moonology. Moonology? Moonology what by Yasmin it? Boland. It's about the, the lunar cycles and how we can connect our our ourselves to it in a very practical way. It's yeah, not hippie, right. it's all this spiritual It's not too hocus-pocus. Not really, no. And okay. Another one, Green Platform. Um, it's by a guy who was the principal in uh, St. They were the cloaks. Columbus. Columbus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he was a priest and then he became a teacher and uh, the principal there. And he wrote it, Green Platform, incredible book. Really? Very much um, in about CBT and choosing to think a certain way. Right, interesting. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and it's kind of become a, a joke in my house, you know, choose the green platform today. Like if somebody seems to be off off balance or a little bit out of kilter. Yeah, so, yeah. And it's a very powerful book. Do you have someone, three, three questions. Part A, in your life. Part B, in Ireland. Part C, globally, even in history, who you admire the most. Yeah, my mum. Yeah. Um, globally, Nile Rogers. Nile Rogers, who's that? He is the the leader of Chic, and he's Chic, the band. Right. Okay. And you he, know, I don't he's know a cancer thing. survivor. He is. Um, his parents. He grew up in in New York. His mother was fourteen when she had him. She was a heroin no addict. He is the most incredible, loving, and uh, wealth of positive energy that I've ever met in my life. I met him at um, backstage at Electric Picnic this, this year. Right. And I might kind of, it was a very profound moment for me because I had, I really just felt it. he was an incredible. Yeah, right. Human. God, that's cool. So if, if you haven't heard about Niall Rogers' um, story, absolutely go and, and yeah, read okay. about him. He's an amazing man. And in Ireland then, is there anyone in our kind of cultural? Mm, Ivana Bacic. 
Who's yeah, that? Senator. She and Who's she's also um, a law lecturer. She has done so much for women's rights, for um, law policy making, um, for for women, and she's just uh, a powerhouse. So right, love her. Jeez, yeah. that's pretty cool. Um, a quote to live by. <clears throat> a quote to live by. Wow, these are quick fire questions. They are. Uh, quote to live by. Give people the freedom to think what they want. Give people freedom to think what they want. Nice. I think you seem to be certainly living, living by that one. And then last one, best bit of advice you've gotten. Uh, uh, react to your first reaction. Came from Anna McGillicuddy. She's the Deputy uh, Consul General in New York. Um, she said that, you know, react to your first reaction. I think everyone has a chimp, uh, another one, Chimp Paradox. That's a great book. But everyone has a, their first primal reaction to something. And then rather than reacting to what somebody said to you, react to why you're reacting to that in that way. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, right. So why do you feel angry? Why do you feel sad? Yeah, why do yeah. you feel delighted about that? Rather than reacting in a chimp fashion and just in a primal way, react to your own reaction. Because okay. that's at the end of the day all you can control. You sure, can't control yeah, what's yeah. just been said to you, but you can control how you react to it. Very that was interesting. The, the best bit of advice I've ever been given. MK Slattery, wise gal. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Bart. Absolute pleasure. Handshake. <laughs> <laughs> I'm such a handshaker.